Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. And so we come to the end of another week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and I'm very glad to have you with us. Um, You know, I think those of you who listen regularly certainly will remember that during the election cycle, um, we, um, on any number of occasions, talked about the uh, race up in the 14th Congressional District. It wasn't much of of a race. Uh, Obviously, Marjorie Taylor Greene was by far the favorite throughout the uh, primary and then the general election season. Um, And so we talked back then about her extremist views, about some of her uh, offensive tweets and other social media posts. Um, But since the election, we have not spent quite as much time talking about behavior of hers that many people have found very offensive. And, And the simple reason for that is we don't want to spend all of our time being distracted by what someone is saying on Twitter what someone is posting on social media, um, and we don't want to give them oxygen. Uh, um, But that doesn't mean we can ignore uh, some of the things that are happening, and that's certainly the case today. Uh, As I I said at the opening of the show, Marjorie Taylor Greene has uh, blown up as a subject of enormous national controversy, Um, and so we're going to talk about that controversy uh, today. Just to recap, remember that it's Marjorie Taylor Greene who, number one, is a QAnon devotee. She has, on many occasions, subscribed to uh, uh, anti-Semitic, anti-black pronouncements. She has called the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, a false flag operation. She said the same thing about Sandy Hook. Uh, she most recently, it, it's uh, been uncovered that she th- claimed that the Las Vegas shootings, the massacre in which more than 50 people were killed, was in fact perpetrated by anti-gun activists who were looking to call attention to their needs to ban guns. And um, on, a, on a more uh, absurd note, she believes now we've learned that wildfires in California were probably caused by laser beams being shot from outer space. Um, there are so many more things that we can talk about here, including, I should say, the, the tweets and the video that have really caused a lot of attention in the last few days up on the Hill. Uh, we now know that she has liked tweets which call for uh, shooting Nancy Pelosi in the head. And here's another one that is about President Obama and then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton when the Iran deal was signed, uh, she tweeted her disfavor with that agreement uh, well before she was in Congress, of course. And somebody responded to her, now do we get to hang them? And Green's response was, stage is being set, players being put in place. We must be patient. This must be done perfectly or liberal judges would let them off, implying some sort of trial, apparently a people's tribunal, Uh, which might lead to the execution of Obama and uh, Clinton. So I I think you already know that there's enormous controversy around her. But what are the larger implications of of her behavior, her beliefs? That's what we want to discuss today. And we have a great panel of journalists to do just that. We're joined by Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tia, thank you for being with us today. You can't stay out of the national news, Tia. No sooner does the Georgia runoff finish up, and now you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene to deal with in Washington. Yeah, I think Marjorie has become, Representative Greene has become a bigger issue nationally, but she's always kind of been an issue for us, you know, here in Georgia. We've been writing about her. We've been covering the drip, drip, drip of her problematic behavior. And we've been covering her transition to a member of Congress, you know. So, but I think the more that she becomes, you know, she started out as just the Georgia issue. I think that's what it was interpreted as. And for better or for worse, the Republican leaders 
didn't believe or didn't take seriously that she would become an issue for them from a national perspective. And that's what is becoming clear every day. I, I think that's a great point. Uh, the country is starting to learn about her, what people here in Georgia, what all of us have reported on and known about for some time. Uh, I'm glad you could join us for this conversation. Raina Cash, who is the executive editor of Savannah Morning News, is with us too. Raina, thank you for being with us today from Savannah. How are things going down there? It's going great. Good morning. Um, I'm looking forward to this uh, this conversation about the most polarizing or one of the most polarizing political figures uh, in the country. And um, she's, she's on the lips of, of every national media outlet uh, to Tia's point. Um, Georgia has been talking about her and writing about her for, for a while now, but uh, it's interesting to see the awakening of the country um, regarding Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, Chuck Williams, reporter from WRBL-TV in Columbus, you would agree with that uh, sentiment. You've been reporting on her, as we all have. Absolutely, and I would even expand to what Tia and Randy just said. You know, they're saying the country is starting to learn about her. I would argue people like us down here, downstate in Georgia, are starting to learn more about her. People in the Columbuses in South Georgia that may not have known her in this uh, isolated up in the northern part in the 14th, I think a lot of us are starting to learn more about her as some of the Parkland and Sandy Hook stuff becomes more prevalent and more more known. Um, also joined today by Riley Bunch, Georgia State House reporter for CNHI News, which means her stories appear in a chain of newspapers around the state. Hi, Riley. How are you? Doing good, Bill. Happy to take a little bit of a break from the legislature, um, the Senate budget hearings today, and talk about something that has huge implications for one of my papers up in Dalton, the Dalton Daily Citizen News, um, which is in the heart of the 14th District for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because a little bit in a little while we're going to talk about an incident up in Dalton which uh, caused more controversy for Marjorie Taylor Greene. But let's start uh, the conversation basically with this. Um, during the campaign, I think it was Lucy McBath, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, Lucy McBath, although she wasn't running against Marjorie Taylor Greene, her people uh, got out a video which has now captured national attention, but which many of us in this state had seen long before now. In 2019, uh, while she was just Citizen Greene, she was in Washington lobbying, trying to lobby in favor of uh, gun ownership, fighting against any efforts to uh, control uh, uh, weapons, to, to uh, pass gun safety laws. And one of the people who was up there was David Hogg, who many people have gotten to know. He was a student at uh, Parkland in the high school when the shootings occurred, traumatized as was everyone who was part of that event and emerged as the real leaders of the student movement, the student effort to call attention to the danger of guns. So I'm going to play a little bit of a video. You're going to hear the audio of it, of course. It's, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene chasing David Hogg down the street. Remember, he's a teenager. Um, and yelling at him and trying to provoke him to have a discussion with her about Guns And this video, which uh, suddenly went nationwide in the last day or so, has really, really cauterized feelings about Green. So let's listen to a bit of that clip. David, why are you supporting the red flag laws? If there had been, if Scott Peterson, the resource officer at Parkland, had done his job, then Nicholas Cruz wouldn't have killed anybody in your high school, or at least protected them. Why are you supporting red flag gun laws that attack our Second Amendment rights? And why are you using kids to get to, as a barrier? Do you not know how to defend your stance? Look, I'm an American citizen. I'm a gun owner. I have a concealed carry permit. I carry a gun with, for, for protection for myself. And you are using your lobby and the money behind it and the kids to try to take away my Second Amendment rights. 
So um, that goes on. Uh, David Hogg ignores her, keeps walking. But but uh, let's continue that for just a moment and then bring the panel in. David Hogg was interviewed by CNN yesterday morning and asked if he remembered that incident, which had happened a year plus ago. And here's what he said about the incident and about his feelings about what should happen to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, I, I absolutely remember that. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm just going to uh, keep a straight face and practice my mindfulness uh, meditation that I've often done to help cope with my PTSD and, you know, my ADHD as well. Um, and it was actually really helpful in that regard because we can see in that video, they're clearly trying to get a rise out of me um, and uh, the fellow activists that I'm with by asking incredibly triggering questions, saying the name of my shooter and uh, the name of the shooter at my high school. and you know, stuff like that. So, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, as I was told growing up, it's just better not to respond to bullies and just fuck and just walk away. My message to Kevin McCarthy is take all of her committee assignments away. Along with that, also don't support her when she runs for re-election again and try to get her primary. If you say this is not your party, actually call it out and hold her accountable because Republicans always act as if they're the party of decency and respect. But with the party of decency and respect, question whether or not school shootings happened? Would they harass the survivors of these shootings for having different opinions than them? I don't think so. And I think if Kevin McCarthy doesn't think so either, he needs to actually stand up and do something about this this congresswoman. So, uh, Tia, there's a lot to unpack there, but let's just start with the actual incident itself. As I said, David Hogg had been in one of the most traumatic possible situations you could imagine. A child, essentially, a teenager could be involved with uh, someone running through the school, shooting at people, and he's trying to get his life back together and make a difference, and we have Marjorie Taylor Greene attacking him. Yeah, and it shows, again, that her roots, even before she was a candidate for Congress, was in these conspiracy theories, as well as backing far-right positions, um, And Marjorie Taylor Greene also represents one of the big problems with the Republican Party, which is that mainstream GOP ideals, such as gun rights and um, free market and, you know, those type of things are woven into the conspiracy theories by people who straddle both sides. And then that legitimizes, you know, because most Republicans will say, yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene, fight for gun rights, fight for our Second Amendment rights. But they wouldn't necessarily say harass and spread conspiracy theories about mass shooting. But she's done both. And her supporters may ignore one part and encourage the other. And that has allowed her to ascend in the party to Congress. And that's something that she is just one example of a problem that plagues today's Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, uh, Chuck, I think that uh, Atia's point is well made. I mean, clearly Democrats on the Hill and across the country, for that matter, are outraged by Marjorie Taylor Greene. But she's created an enormous problem for Republicans as well. And David Hogg uh, put it quite clearly that this is Kevin McCarthy's issue to deal with. It is. And he's got to deal with it in some way. And I think that's what you're going to see. Or just let it go. Who knows, Bill? I mean, I've been looking at Marjorie Taylor Greene and kind of what she stands for. And I keep coming back to a figure that you can put her in some historical context. And, you know, does she feel like this time's less dramatic? I mean, and is she someone who will come in, be on the screen, and then gone like Governor Maddox was in his period. I mean, and maybe that's a question that you can answer, Bill, but I mean, to me, that's what this feels like. Could she be this generation's less dramatic? I would just add and check on that. Yeah, I was ready to jump in on there for Bill, but um, I think that uh, kind of going back the last time I was on the show, we were talking about how maybe the Republican Party can is going to have this reunited moment after Donald Trump has left. And I think that possibly Marjorie Taylor Greene, where she is 
very, very extreme, could become a new Donald Trump figure for the party. You know, we'll have some Republicans kind of sign on and not kind of back, maybe not back to the extent her conspiracy theories that she spreads, but not really do anything. Whereas we have, you know, the more mainstream Republicans trying to kind of get the party back together when they have this opportunity and Trump has just left office. And I think that's something that we might see in the future. Um, Raina, we're, we know that uh, next week when Congress comes back into session, uh, the House is going to probably have no choice but to take a look at her behavior uh, because a privilege resolution is going to be introduced, which means it's going to demand a floor uh, a debate uh, to expel her from her seat. Kevin McCarthy's uh, comment so far as this thing has exploded this week through a spokesman uh, McCarthy described Green's comments as, quote, deeply disturbing, and his office said, quote, Leader McCarthy plans to have a conversation with the congresswoman about them, uh, but did not elaborate uh, further. Raina? I wish I could be a fly on the wall for that conversation, quite honestly. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what it is that he would say to her uh, to try and uh, corral or uh, entamp some of this uh, this rhetoric down, and I don't think that he would be successful. Um, Donald Trump is is gone. He's out of he's out of office. Q, whoever the mysterious Q is, has pretty much ghosted his followers, um, and so a, a movement like that uh, needs uh, someone to give them oxygen, some voice at the top, and. Um, someone in this case who would be visible and in a position of influence would be a representative green. And uh, so while they may try very hard to distance themselves uh, from these Q conspiracy theories and uh, things like that, I believe that uh, she fills a void that uh, could be or may have been vacated by, uh, by Donald Trump. Um, you know, he's no longer on social media. She was banned herself, I believe, for a, a time from uh, Twitter. But, um, you know, you could see her trying to step into that spot. And as extreme, we, ex, as extreme as we often thought the president was, there were many Republicans and continue to be many who uh, rode his coattails. And I'm not saying that they're going to, you know, storm behind uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. But I'm not so convinced that um, many will denounce her or distance themselves as far from her as you might expect. Um, we should remind people, Tia, that uh, the president at one point after Marjorie Taylor Greene won election tweeted, Marjorie is strong on everything and never gives up a real winner. Tia, yesterday in, the, uh, in Speaker Pelosi's weekly news conference, Marjorie Taylor Greene obviously was a major topic of conversation really for two reasons. Let me play you her response to a question, Tia, and then ask you to weigh in. Pelosi was asked how the Republican minority was um, decided that they would assign the new congresswoman to a position on the education committee. And here was what Pelosi had to say about that. What I'm concerned about is the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives. Uh, a per assigning her to the Education Committee when she has mocked the killing of little children at Sandy Hook Elementary School, when she has mocked the killing of teenagers in high school at the Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School, what could they be thinking? or is thinking too generous a word for what they might be doing. It's absolutely appalling. So Tia, um, react to that. Yeah, and I think it's Democrats, a lot of Democrats are, even if they're making plans to try to censure or expel Marjorie Taylor Greene, or they're asking for her to be removed, from her committees, they're also putting the onus not just on her, but on the Republican leadership. And I think it's a smart move because it does put Republicans on the hook to highlight that they are remaining silent and therefore 
do they approve of what she's saying? And again, this speaks to the bigger issue of whether Republicans want someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene representing their party and who they stand for. So that's something Speaker Pelosi's been saying. Even the day that Marjorie Taylor Greene run the run, won the runoff, she used a bad word to describe Speaker Pelosi. And even so that was August, and I asked Speaker Pelosi, and she said the same thing. She said, listen, that's the Republicans' problem. That's Kevin McCarthy needs to decide how he's going to deal with this potential new member at the time of his caucus. And that also removes the cover of, you know, it removes Republicans being able to hide behind, you know, Democrats who are in control. No, this is your party. This is your member. You all decide is what Pelosi's saying. Raina? I was just reminded, thinking back um, years ago in my early journalism career, I covered uh, high school sports. And one of the schools on my beat was Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. It had just opened. So I'd become very familiar with, you know, that area and that school and, and the people there. And I often think about those 17 people who were killed and uh, the the fact that she would, you know, call that fake uh, is, is so disturbing. And I think if there are moments that, that somewhat brought people together, it was Sandy Hook, it was Parkland, while there were differences in how to handle and continue to be differences in how to handle uh, the, the gun legislation, gun rights, um, the, the, the pull of standing behind and standing for children, um, I think has in some ways been unifying. Uh, the fact that uh, she was placed on this committee uh, would be disconcerting to many people on both sides of the aisle. And I would fully expect uh, her, just like uh, I believe Steve King was, at one point removed from all committee assignments. Um, I could see that sort of action being taken against her, um, particularly as it pertains to this committee, uh, the Education Committee. She's, she's so, shown no uh, sympathy or remorse or um, anything like that for, for children who've been killed um, in gun violence. Um, so, Chuck, in, in terms of how, how Republicans are going to address this, I do think it's important to point out that uh, there have been conservative voices, very conservative voices, which have been critical of her. Ronna McDaniel, the, the RNC chair, uh, called Marjorie, the, the newer tweets that have come to light, uh, disgusting. She said they have no place in our party and should be looked into. And then she went beyond that and spoke to uh, Green support of QAnon. And she said this, and it's a quote, I think it's really important after what's just happened in our country, meaning January 6th, that we have some self-reflection on the violence that's continuing to erupt. I think QAnon is beyond fringe. I think it's dangerous. We should be looking at that and making sure we don't mince words. And when we say we can't support groups that, we, that are inciting violence, we should mean it. So, And then Daily Caller actually had a, quite a critical piece on her. And Daily Caller is no friend of the, uh, of the progressives in uh, this country. Bill, I mean, you look, what you're saying right now is how do Republicans, or what you're asking is how do Republicans deal with this? And, you know, I was at the rally in Dalton the night before the Ossoff Warnock wins and President Trump's rally up there in heart of her district. Uh, I talked to a number of people going in and out of that rally. None of them that I talked to believed that Joe Biden won the election. None of them in that crowd. Not a, not even find a single person that said Joe Biden legitimately won the presidential election. If you can't get there on something like a presidential election and say, okay, this guy got more votes than this guy, it's going to be very difficult to get some, some Republicans. And some of those are elected officials, and many of those are just rank-and-file party votes. It's going to be very difficult to get them to a place where they will condemn Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, that's yeah. the way I see it. Yeah. 
Um, Riley, uh, uh, Chuck mentions Dalton. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that's one of the areas that sees your work. I, what I want to do is get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, I do want to, in finishing our conversation in this show about Marjorie Taylor Greene, talk about an incident that took place up there at a town meeting that she held night before last. We'll do that, but first, let's pause for these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Great panel of journalists on today's Political Rewind. Raina Cash, executive editor, Savannah Morning News. Tia Mitchell, AJC Washington reporter. Chuck Williams, reporter for WRBL-TV down in Columbus. And Riley Bunch, Georgia State House reporter for CNHI News. Riley, uh, since you cover Dalton, I want to ask you to talk about this incident. I'll describe it very briefly. A reporter from TV station in Chattanooga, uh, went to cover a town meeting that Green had with constituents, uh, apparently, up there night before last. They did get apparently credentialed, according to the TV station, to be at the event. Uh, at one point, the reporter, a young woman, tried to ask a question, and she was uh, cut off by Green. And a deputy sheriff from Whitfield County, who was there at the event, apparently in a law enforcement role, uh, tried to remove her and told her that if she didn't leave peaceably, he would arrest her. Um, Talk about that. Yeah, so I think it's important to note some of the context of this. We've been talking about how national Republicans are going to handle this, how people in the House are going to handle this. But in the end, it was her local constituents that voted her into office, and she has been spreading this kind of rhetoric, these kinds of conspiracy theories up in North Georgia for long before the national media has picked them up. So, And she's also been had a really, really bad relationship with the media. So I could talk a little bit about the credential cross process for that rally up in Dalton. She held a series of rallies. You had to go through a I was I did this process had to go through a credential to get into the rally and then after you were credentials which specifically said local media only could attend um, you were notified that you could not ask questions you 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 are credentialed but you can come in and you can videotape and you can sit so this whole kind of blow up with this TV crew doesn't surprise me in any way shape or form Marjorie Taylor Greene does not have a good relationship with the media and never will and in terms of the sheriff you know, kind of jumping onto the bandwagon and threatening arrest for these reporters, that wasn't surprising either because you think about the deep business and political ties she has in that community, and it really showed. Um, Chuck, in an interview with that TV station yesterday, Whitfield County Sheriff Scott Chitwood defended the deputies for making the arrest, uh, for try- for threatening to make the arrest, I should say. Um, and, and here's what he said. He says that Green's team instructed his deputies to remove any member of the media who attempted to talk to anyone or ask a question of the congresswoman. Um, so, Chuck, you're a veteran. You've been you were in the newspaper business for many years. Now you've gone over to TV. Um, you know, I, I get you, we've all been in situations, I think, as journalists where people we've covered don't want to answer our questions where they've actually turned around on us and said, you're not invited to ask questions, stop talking, whatever. I personally wonder how you as a veteran journalist feel when you hear that a sheriff's deputy was enlisted to help suppress a reporter in this instance. Troubling. That's that's the most troubling part of this to me, Bill, because you know, the sheriffs, the sheriff and his deputies work for the people. And, you know, this reporter was doing her job and she was doing it pretty well. I mean, she did. I mean, I've watched the video of them taking her out and have watched some of what happened up there. And she handled herself very well from my perspective, but she tried to get a question in. It was a legitimate question. So 
she should be able to ask those questions. And here's the thing that's happening right now in the political realm that I'm seeing. There are people that are trying to let you in, and they want their cake, and they want to eat it too. They want you in there. They want the video of you doing the, of you of them doing an event, being with their constituents, but they don't want to ask the questions. And as journalists, we've got to ask ourselves a question: Do we go in and give them that video? Do we go in and give them the pictures of that when they're not going to allow us to do our jobs? That's the question. And then the sheriff's part, you know, I'll just go back to this troubling, deeply troubling. So, Raina, I mean, you could dismiss this as a an isolated incident, and, and maybe it doesn't deserve a great deal of attention, except here's why I think it's worth a, a conversation. This really is part, we have spent the last four and a half, maybe five years since he was a candidate, listening to a president and a candidate who talked about the press, the media as the enemy of the people, uh, as presenting fake news. And, and we, in an incident like this, the reason I think it's worth illuminating is it's, I think, an expression of people's belief that perhaps reporters really are the enemy of the people. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, it, it reinforces that message, uh, that deep belief uh, that the media is there to um, as as an attack weapon or something like that. That that we're the enemy of the people, and um, that's something that's a move by Representative Green, and uh, that every one of those folks or constituents who were at that event would have been proud of, would have supported, um, and those who were not able to attend. Um, would have would have had no issue whatsoever with this uh, reporter or this this television crew being put out, not being allowed to ask questions, and uh, probably uh, would not have been dissatisfied uh, with an arrest uh, because they quote unquote broke the rules. But of course, we're not there just to um, to show pictures and uh, to get sound bites. Uh, but a journalist asks questions. We are curious. Uh, we interrogate issues. Uh, that's our job. And uh, this reporter um, was there to do that. And and so, um, you know, the, the sheriff taking that move to me was disturbing, like following the instructions of the uh, of the candidate in that way. But I don't think the, I don't think it's overblown. It's uh, it's this emblematic of a bigger problem. And I just want to point out that she waited until the question and answer period. So, you know, Marjorie Green invited media to this rally, told them where to show up because the address was not publicly mentioned, invited them, told them where to show up. And yes, she didn't want questions, but the journalists waited until the question and answer period where people in the audience were asking questions. And, um, and again, I'm sure Marjorie Green didn't want to answer the media's questions, but that would have had us there as stenographers. And, and as Raina has said, that's not what we do. We're not just there to give the view of any event or news, news that happens just from, you know, the eyes of, the folks who are hosting it, what they want us to say. And um, Marjorie Green's going to have to learn that. Um, and that's why social media is so important to her, because it allows her to kind of go around those, go around talking to the media a lot of times. Well, I want to counter that with an experience I had a couple of days before the Ossoff uh, Warnock victories in the runoffs. Stacey Abrams was in Columbus. And she held an event at a restaurant, a black-owned business, and media was there along with some entrepreneurs and people who were small business people. And she was not going to do a Q&A with reporters after. There were only two reporters there. So we asked our questions during the Q&A with the deal Stacey Abrams answered them. And I asked a question about her sister being the judge in the, in the, in the lawsuit that 
in Bobby Muskogee County on the voter stuff. She answered the question. And, you know, and I'm just saying that to point out that there's another way to handle this if you're Marjorie Taylor Greene, because I saw Stacey Abrams do it. Um, yeah, I, I hear that. Uh, I do I do want to point out, at, at least in my experience, there are certainly <laughs> people on both sides uh, part of, of the partisan divide are quite are, have expressed a lot of uh, hostility towards reporters and answering questions. It's not just a Republican problem. Uh, Democrats do it, as you well uh, know, too. Totally. Uh, let's do this. Okay, okay. enough about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, we will follow what happens on the Hill, especially next week when this uh, uh, resolution is presented uh, and there is debate. We'll, we'll see how Republicans uh, decide to handle this uh, and, and Democrats as well. Uh, but for now, let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back and talk about a few other issues that are on our agenda for today. You're listening to Political Rewind. I, I want to give you all a quick follow-up to two stories that we talked about on this show this week. Uh, one of them is David Clark, a state rep who refused to take a uh, COVID test, uh, which is required by legislators and others at the General Assembly, uh, and was escorted off the floor by a state trooper, uh, came back. He did take a test and uh, is back in uh, the chamber. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, although he still thinks it was Big Brother who was forcing him to do it. But here's a much more important update. Uh, many of you heard our show yesterday, uh, which was kind of pegged off of President Biden's a sweeping vision of addressing systemic racism. Uh, and we talked a lot about the issues he's going to face in trying to make that happen. But one of the questions I asked the panel was whether they felt that there was still energy around repairing the wrongs that have been done for so long to minorities in this country, particularly African-Americans. And all of them, many of them civil rights leaders in their own right, said yes. Well, here's an important example of that. The Coca-Cola company, uh, their general counsel, Bradley Gayton, has announced that they, they are going to insist that the law firms that contract with Coca-Cola begin diversifying the workforces that do Coke work. And here's what Bradley Gayton said in a, in a quote. Quite simply, we are no longer interested in discussing motivations, programs, or excuses for little to no progress. It's the results that we are demanding and will measure uh, going forward. He, he said that it is time to change the trajectory of diversity, and if they don't do it, the law firms that work with Coca-Cola, uh, the Coca-Cola company intends to start cutting down on the amount of uh, money that it pays to these firms. That is an example of business, I, th I think, based on our conversation yesterday, taking what happened this past summer and continues uh, quite seriously. All right, let's uh, get back to our uh, panel. Tia Mitchell, Chuck Williams, Raina Cash, and Riley Bunch. Uh, I want to talk about COVID for a couple minutes, if we can. Um, and Tia, uh, the president this week has also uh, clearly addressed his concerns about the fact that not enough, there's not enough money for in the relief package. They're still wrangling about that on Capitol Hill. He's also made this pledge to make sure we get 100 million shots in arms in the first 100 days of his administration. Um, but, but the feds are having trouble getting the vaccine they need manufactured and shipped out to the states. And we see that right here in Georgia, Katia. Yeah, I think, you know, President Biden is trying to hit the ground running. He's trying to make up for lost time. But we're, what we're continuing to feel is the lack of coordination, the lack of a clear national plan from when former President Trump was in office. And America is a huge country with hundreds of millions of people who need to be vaccinated, and you can't change that overnight. And, you know, the Biden administration knows that they're going to have to take steps, but it's going to take some time. And what's really scary for me is that we can tell there's coronavirus fatigue and people are itching to kind of return to normal. I look at what you guys are doing in Georgia, and in many places in Georgia, you wouldn't know there's a pandemic. 
but we also know people are still dying from the coronavirus. Two, one current AJC reporter and one former AJC reporter both died last week, and so of the coronavirus. And so there's a a pandemic still raging in America, and people um, in some pockets of the nation are acting like it's not still a thing. Uh, let's let's do a, a little bit of a round here with a, a, a journalists from different parts of the state. Um, Raina, uh, how is progress uh, going in terms of vaccinating the people down in the Savannah area? Um, and and how, how t- tell me a little bit about the the progress of the virus down there as well. Well, it's it's a problem that's playing out everywhere. Uh, people trying to get their appointments. Uh, that's been a, a big problem. It's not a matter of uh, whether there are enough vaccines. It's a matter of organizing and uh, people able to get through on phone on the phone and, and make their appointments and uh, some of the, the bureaucratic uh, sort of hurdles that folks are facing. Uh, we did a story yesterday, uh, Mary Landers, uh, who's been covering COVID for us, highlighted one of these issues. So St. Joseph's Candler is one of the hospital systems here, and the other one is Memorial. Uh, they both received St. Joseph's Candler around 13,000 uh, vaccines, Memorial uh, 12,700. The difference in the distribution of this vaccine between uh, these two hospitals with their patients, not inpatients, but their um, patients in their system, St. Joseph's proactively reached out to their patients who are 65 and older and invited them to come and make appointments and get the vaccine. A memorial just began doing that yesterday. They were behind. It's an, it's an HCA. And uh, while St. Joseph's patients were getting vaccinated, memorial patients were not until yesterday. So even uh, from a from a federal level down to the state level, even down to the local communities, uh, it's not all operating in a similar fashion, and it's causing a lot of confusion. Chuck, talk about Columbus area. Well, confusion is is something that we're seeing across the state. But one of the things they've done done well down here is the city, under the direction of Mayor Skip Henderson, has stepped in and partnered with the Department of Public Health. And they have been running a mass clinic that has done probably close to 10,000 shots now on the Piedmont Columbus Regional Campus. Piedmont has its own clinic, but they also have this other clinic where people that are signing up through DPH are going in. And they're doing these mass vaccination drive-throughs, too. And there's one today that I'm supposed to go look at. And those are essentially dry runs for when large doses of the juice become available. And uh, the emergency management director here, a guy named Chance Corbett, uh, told me a story I did this week, that they are prepared to put 6,000 shots a day in arms when they get the vaccine. And and they use the entire civic center complex down here to do it. And it's pretty, it's pretty impressive mall count. So down here you're seeing sign up is still terrible. I mean, sign up, there are people that signed up on DPH and not heard anything, but they're now going in alternate ways that they can't get in. They're going to a public. So they're going into the public sign up. They're going into the Walmart sign up. So people are looking for alternatives. And one of the things that's impressed me is people are helping older people that might have difficulty navigating the the online sign-up systems. I'm seeing a lot of family and just friends that are helping people get get the vaccine. So that's what's going on down here at Boards Work. Um, Riley, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about what's happening with the budget and COVID-19, because I thought something very important happened in terms of uh, uh, House budget writers yesterday, and I'll get to that in a minute. Before I do, though, let me just... Um, tell you what the state tells us, state DPH, about distribution of vaccines right now. Um, They basically say that so far, 836,518 Georgians have received uh, vaccines, um, which is a start. Uh, That's obviously not what they would hope for. I'm interested in where the vaccine is and isn't available. Here in metro Atlanta, it's really, really hard to find 
uh, any place to get vaccinated. And when, when a site opens uh, and says, we've got vaccines, sign up, it, it, the, the reservations, the appointments close up within an hour. So it's still a real issue. But Riley, speak to the fact that earlier in the week on the show, um, our panel talked about the fact that Governor Kemp, in the midst of a pandemic, um, really suggested only a minuscule increase in funding for the Department of Public Health uh, because he felt that the funding would come from the feds. But yesterday, House budget writers said, not so fast, Governor Kemp, we need to put more money into DPH. Yeah, Governor Kemp didn't, you know, he faced a lot of criticism because he didn't propose putting a lot of money into DPH in the amended FY21 budget. Um, and he that's something his office has been getting blowback for since he released this proposal. Um, but, and they, like, exactly like you said, Bill, he says that they have a lot, a lot of money coming from the federal government, and they do. You know, Chairman Terry England and the House Appropriations Chairman said that the um, DPH is sitting on about a billion dollars in federal funds right now. But the other side of it is that DPH has been long underfunded. They face the same exact severe cuts that all state agencies face across the board because of, you know, because the panning pandemic, and then they are responding to the pandemic. So just to not funnel more dollars into DPH right now, it, it's just not, I don't know if that's a great idea in the long term. And then so we have House budget writers coming in yesterday. They voted on their their proposal that will be sent to the Senate and they added millions back. They added 18 million for a new vaccination system to schedule appointments, which was a really big problem that we've had with their old grits system crashing. And Chairman England also mentioned that, you know, the budget's going to go into the Senate and the Senate is also looking at some dollars funding, funneling into DPH. So lawmakers have stepped up in that in that regard um, to kind of fill the gaps in that state agency. Um, Riley, while, while you're talking about this, um, I saw that you filed a story the other day reporting that employees of state DPH are reluctant themselves to get vaccinated. What is that all about? That Well, we knew that vaccine hesitancy was going to be one of the biggest challenges, both on the local level and on the federal level. Everyone's dealing with this right now, but that is a he really hard pill to swallow that State Department um, employees, Dr. Toomey said this in a subcommittee budget hearing, so she didn't say it in a press conference, she didn't say it in a main budget hearing, she said it in a subcommittee budget hearing, which I thought was important, that state health department employees across the board, only about 30% of them are opting to take the vaccine. And the state has had this issue with healthcare workers who are slated to be the first people to get the vaccine doses because they're on the front, uh, you know, well um, decided on the front lines, the ones responding to this pandemic, but to hear that state employees who have been responding to this pandemic for months is really hard to hear. And, and you know, Dr. Toomey has mentioned this several times. She's been frustrated and um, upset over the lack of, um, you know, of our healthcare workers not wanting to take this. So that throws a challenge at the state too, and is part of the reason why they opened up the first phase eligibility to, uh, you know, more Georgians because they had this reluctancy from healthcare workers. Um, so let me just, as we finish talking about the virus, uh, tell you the latest numbers from DPH. We now have well over 700,000 confirmed cases here. It's uh, 737 thousand confirmed cases. And as we said the other day, we knew that Georgia was about to go over 12,000 deaths. Unfortunately, we're up to 12,280 deaths, 49,000 plus hospitalizations, 8,300 8, people are still hospitalized at this point in ICU, I should say, in intensive care. Um, so uh, the virus continues to be rage on in uh, the state of Georgia. Um, before we leave, let's turn our attention back uh, to some of the things that are happening under the Gold Dome. Uh, one thing in particular, Chuck, let me, let me start with you on this, if I may. Um, we know that since the election, there are Republicans, including Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, who want to, in some way, curtail uh, absentee balloting in Georgia, especially no excuse absentee balloting in Georgia, what the Secretary of State has said he thinks ought to be eliminated, that you ought to have to have a reason for voting by mail, despite how incredibly popular it became during the election. Now, 
we have a uh, proposal from a uh, freshman state representative, Jason Anavitarte, who introduced a bill that would require absentee voters to submit state photo IDs, Chuck, not once, but twice. Um, he wants you to have to submit a photo ID when you apply for an absentee ballot and, a, and then have to do it again when you actually send your absentee ballot in. Um, I can imagine that there are a lot of people out there who wonder if that's really a security measure or an effort to suppress votes. And I leave that up to you all to talk about. Chuck? Well, Bill, if the morning after the runoffs, if you didn't think this was going to be an issue, you had your head in the sand. And the absentee ballots clearly played a role in this. More Georgians voted absentee. Um, I, personally, I voted absentee in the general and voted um, in person early at the uh, at the um, runoff. But I think you're going to see an effort to curtail, curtail it. It's going to be interesting to see how this fight goes. I mean, we have down here Calvin Smyre, the dean of the General Assembly, representative with more time up there than anybody. What, what will Calvin and his Democratic counterparts do to battle this? Because they don't have a lot in the way of votes, but they do have leverage in other legislation and stuff like that. So it's going to be interesting to watch what the Democrats do to try to slow down attempts to make absentee ballot balloting more difficult. It's going to be interesting to watch. Um, if Tia, real quick, because Sam just told me we're more, more out of time than I thought, but you weigh in. <laughs> yeah, I was just say um darn it i lost my train of thought what were we talking about we were talking about absent efforts to suppress oh, yeah. absentee okay. vote but you know oh, yes. what i brought it real back. quick the guy who the guy who proposed the bill doesn't have many co-sponsors so we need to take it with a grain of salt that this bill is what's going to go but also i think republicans should answer as to why absentee ballot was great when they were winning and bad now that they're losing Tia Mitchell, you get the last word as we run out of time on today's show. Tia Mitchell, Chuck Williams, Raina Cash, Riley Bunch, thank you for being here. As we leave you, we keep talking about the small comforts you're getting during very difficult times. Uh, Lily Hardy-Morris says that her small comfort is artwork. She's got a studio. She paints every day. She is physical. She likes to sling paint and make wild gestural marks and likes to see new paintings emerge from it. We really appreciate you giving us your ideas about uh, uh, your joys in these difficult times. Uh, We're out of time today for Political Rewind. We'll be back again with a new show on Monday. In the meantime, please take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, We'll see you again for more Political Rewind next week. Bye-bye, everybody.